Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the Fail to Fail podcast with your host, Don Abernathy. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Failed to Fail podcast, the Digital 410 Productions motivational podcast where we go out and search the land for people who found success on their own terms. They go out and do things that may have a high success rate, or perhaps they, um, growing up, took a wrong path as a child, and everybody thought they'd be failures when they grew up, and yet, despite all that adversity, they found their way to success. And today's guest on today's episode is going to be the former. She was a great student, had a great childhood, but she did find success in an industry that, well, is facing adversity nowadays in 2019, but we will let her explain all that to you here shortly. First and foremost, I just want to thank our friends at Act Computers. Act Computers has been our sponsor here on the Digital 410 Network. Excuse my voice, I've been fighting multiple ailments, multiple medical issues. One of those things being the last three weeks, I've been fighting off a cold, but I'll also get to that momentarily. But first, thank you so much to our fine sponsor, At Computers, for sponsoring all of our podcasts on the Digital 410 Network. And At Computers has been providing IT solutions to all of Southwest Florida since 2004. They specialize in veterinarian clinics, as well as other businesses, large and small. And they do do residential computer repair, laptop repair, cell phone repair, etc. If you need the footprint of your wireless network expanded, they can help you with that. If you have all these new wireless security devices like the Nest system, the Ring doorbell, the Nest cameras, all that stuff. They can take care of all that for you as well. So give them a call 239-283-1120. And I know what you're saying, Don. I love to help you uh, by helping your sponsors, but I don't live in Southwest Florida. How can Act Computers help me? They can help you by logging into your computer remotely directly from their website and uh, helping you fix all of your minor computer issues. As long as you have internet connection, they can help you. Give them a call 239-283-1120 or visit them at act capecoralcom Now, for those of you who are trying to better your life physically, you're getting into the active lifestyle, you may be running, you may be going to the gym, you may be doing yoga, you may be doing spin class, it doesn't matter, but you're doing something with your life that causes you to sweat profusely. It just goes with the realm of what you're doing, but it doesn't mean you have to suffer from sweat in the eyes and your hair getting in your face. Go to sleefs.com, S-L-E-E-F-S.com. You can find all of your active wear needs, yoga pants, uh, sweatbands. If you have kids playing football or you yourself play football, they have football gear there. Go to sleefs.com. Use the promo code D41040. That will save you 40% on your entire shopping cart, and they will kick some coins my way to help us continue expanding the network and provide content that you guys want to hear. And for some of you who do not know, we do have a legitimate URL for our website now. It is failtofail.com. When you go to failtofail.com, you can click on the Amazon link, save that to your favorites, or put it on your desktop. Do whatever it is you wish to do with it. And then when you shop on Amazon via your computer, simply click that link and whenever you buy anything on Amazon they will send us some referral money our way to once again help sponsor the shows and to build the network and last plug last but not least no that's a lie two more plugs while you're at failtofail.com go ahead and click on the patreon link on the right hand side please sign up for one of our tiers one's a dollar one's three dollars and fifty cents a month and one is seven dollars and fifty cents a month if you sign up for the seven dollar plan you will get a free t-shirt from our web store sent to you um we will reach out to you on month two send you a url to our web store all you have to do is select the shirt you want send us the url back with the size and the color we will order it and send it your way no cost to you so there's all you got to do visit sleeves use the promo code if you're looking for activewear use the amazon link on our website and if you want it'd be great if you joined patreon.com you can do all those things at failtofail.com or d-410.com. 
Now they say as you get older your body changes and things that you've never had issues with before become issues and I am learning this at the age of 41. The older I'm getting my skin's getting more delicate, more sensitive. No, this is not a beginning of another spot for some skincare product. Um, I have just experienced in the last 24 hours the worst um, annoyance and a little bit of pain that I've ever suffered. And we really can't track down the source of the pain except for I do have an idea and here's what it is. Here in Florida, at least I've never had a problem with this elsewhere, I'm sure people do, but it seems like it happens more here in Florida than anywhere else. The um, condensation drip tray of our AC units that leak out through the pipe outside of our houses and into the yards, they tend to get clogged up with grass, dirt, mold, insect nesting, what have you. And then so what happens is the condensation tray in your garage overflows and floods out your garage. The easy solution for this is to simply take a small shop back, plug it into the, the drain port on the side of your house, remove the filter from it, and suck all the crap out. You suck it, dump it, suck it, dump it, suck it, dump it, and you're done. And so I did this on Saturday, and then I left my shop back in my garage, left it open to air out. And then yesterday, being Wednesday, I had to go do a maintenance job for one of my IT clients. And one of the things we do on our maintenance is we vacuum out the computers. And so since I just used the shop vac to suck water out of my AC lines, I had to put a new filter on it, which means I opened up the shop vac, I used my hands on the inside, and I put a new filter in it. I went out and did the job, and about 10 minutes after finishing the jobs, my hands just started itching terribly. Itching, itching, itching. I went to the next job, I told my business partner, I said, man, my hands are itching, it won't stop. And so now I'm fighting the cold, my hands are itching, I got stuffed up nose, stuffed up head. And I go, get done with that job, I rush home. Before I even get home, I stop at a Walgreens, and I'm eating Benadryl before I even make it to the front counter, just to try to get the stop. Just to get that itch to stop, it's, it's horrible, it's driving me nuts. And then later on, we're driving with the family out to eat, and my ankle starts itching down by my leg. I'm scratching my ankle, and then the back of my neck starts itching. I go home, take a shower, and I am breaking out in hives all over my legs, my pelvis region. And I'm like, what in the holy heck did I get into? Why am I having this breakout? I'm getting these big red spots on my hands. And so then I get up and I rush out to Walmart and I get some cortisone tin. Clearly I got into something I'm having an allergic reaction to. I don't know what it is. I've never been allergic to anything in my entire life. So I wake up at two o'clock this morning and my feet and my hands are on fire and I'm having even a harder time breathing. And the hives have spread substantially and they're getting bigger. And I'm getting concerned. I'm like, do I have hives in my lungs? Is that why I can't breathe? And the crazy thing was, is my hands and feet were hurting so bad. The only way I can explain it is it felt like I had been working in a rock quarry for 12 hours a day before barefoot and I was required to move rocks by hand. Like my hand and feet were just completely raw feeling. So I dealt with that for like an hour and a half. I passed out, woke up this morning, went down to convenient care, and they don't know what caused it. They think my hypothesis on the vacuum cleaner is probably correct. I probably touched some mold or something that was in that pipe that's been in there that I just clearly had an allergic reaction to. Shot me in the ass with a huge dose of steroids. And I'll be honest with you, that hurt worse than my hands and feet. Not the needle, mind you, no. After they do it and you're sitting there, they make you sit there for 15 minutes because I guess 
there's a history of people having reactions to it where they get sick and can't drive home. So I'm laying on the table and the nurse is like, how do you feel? I was like, I feel like you just hit me in the ass with a baseball. It literally, my whole ass cheek was just radiating in pain. It hurt worse than my hands and feet. But anyhow, get a nice doctor's visit bill, a shot in the ass, prescription for some uh, more steroids. Five hours later, the rash on my feet are gone, the rash on my elbows are gone, the rash on my hands are getting better, and the area that was affected the most, which was my pelvic region, is starting to clear up. It still itches a little bit, but I have never experienced a pain like that in my life from, you know, a non-real injury. And it almost feels like, you know, a one degree burn on your hands and feet. Horrible. Wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. I was supposed to do this editing last night to get the show up for you today, but I was dealing with all these pains. So now the itching's going away, the pain's going away. I'm still congested in the head. I'm still fighting this head cold. I still sound like crap on the mic, but we will get through this. And so now that we got all the housekeeping out of the way, my health status up out of the way. Oh, by the way, I haven't decided. I was going to sign up for a 5K yesterday. And then I started having all these problems with my feet, my hands. And I was like, well, clearly I can't run a 5K this weekend. And good thing I didn't sign up or I'd be out the money. But here it is, 9.30 p.m. on Thursday. Cutoffs aren't done until tomorrow and Friday. So I might just go ahead and pull the trigger and run a 5K Saturday, even though I'm still a little itchy. I just, whenever I get my set my mind to something like that, I don't like to find excuses for not doing something. I'd rather find an excuse to do it. Meaning, hey, I'm not at 100%. I still got itchy feet and itchy hands. Everybody you would talk to would probably say, yeah, you probably shouldn't do it, but maybe instead of looking for a reason not to do it, I should find an excuse to do it. And that is, I have been suffering from knee pain for like the last three weeks as well. I'm a hot mess, I know. And finally on Monday, I put in the first decent time in a long time. I ran out 3.2 miles in 29 minutes, which is almost back to my last 5K time. I'm looking at my bibs on the wall right now. I think my last 5K time was 26 minutes. So... I really want to run a 5K just to get back into it because I've been training for a half marathon then I start having knee pains. I want to do a savage race in November. And so I really got to get back out on the course and make sure I can get that three miles in because the savage race is five miles. You know, there's 5Ks or a dime a dozen down here, but I rarely see any 10Ks. So I need to find one of those. But the way it's going right now, I'm training for probably a 5K on Saturday and a Spartan race in November, which means I got to get back to the gym. But with all my illnesses, ailments, and pains, I haven't been to the gym in a while either. But I'm not going to allow myself to fail in my fitness because I am down 30 pounds. And the whole purpose of this podcast, we talk about things on this show that we don't talk about in other places because this is a, you know, this is more for a particular audience, people who are looking to be motivated. Whereas, you know, the audience for the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, they're strictly interested in World War II and you know the waterman d train show it's more cynical stuff more comedian style stuff more being jerks to each other and so by having three podcasts it allows each one of my personalities to get out in their own way and so we're heading down the positive road let's get to it and joining us on the phone now is a person i've known for a long long time but we will get into that more later we want that to happen naturally um, she is a very accomplished uh, young lady and woman in the field that she has chosen And it's a very interesting field, and we will let that come to be here momentarily, but we will start with her background, Miss Annie Woods. Annie, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, thanks. How is the weather in Kentucky? It's very hot and humid. (laughs) It's been raining here nonstop like crazy. I do have an all-black truck, and when I got into it yesterday, the thermostat said 113 degrees. 
Um, luckily, it yeah, cooled no. down to a quick 97 after I drove for a little bit. Yes. Yeah, we uh, we haven't had rain in a long time here, so it's been a little challenging. But, yeah, to, I was just saying um, I have a, a woman that works with me here on the farm, and we were loading up her car to do deliveries, and we were both just like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> when you, As soon as you walk outside, when your elbow creases start sweating, you know it's hot. Yeah, so. I was uh, working on my <laughs> truck the other day, and I was wearing rubber gloves, and they just completely filled up with water, and I just – But anyhow, um, you have found success in a very interesting way, in a non-conventional field, especially in 2019, and especially in northern Kentucky, um, because, well, (laughs) most of the farmland that used to be there is now uh, rich, nice neighborhoods and golf courses. Yep. And the fact that you have been so successful in your field, and the cool way you go about doing what you do for a living. I really wanted to have you on this podcast because, you know, part of the theme of this podcast is um, two things, really. One, it started out, um, one of the first goals I had was to find people who found success despite um, their upbringing or the opinions people thought of them. Maybe when they were growing up, they didn't do great in school. Maybe they got into a lot of trouble. Maybe the uh, mm-hmm. authority figures in their town, their counselors thought, well, this guy is going to be a loser or this girl is going to be a loser. And despite all that, they failed to fail. They became successful. But then I also kind of split it off to find people such as yourself who found success in fields that maybe people don't really consider anymore or things that uh, people find, you know, really is not the mainstream. And before, sure. we, before we unveil what it is you do for a living – Let's get a little background on you. Uh, you grew up okay. in northern Kentucky in uh, Florence, yeah. uh, Florence, Erlanger, and uh, Big Bone area. Give a little backdrop on your childhood and growing up in northern Kentucky. Sure. Um, you know, I where I live now is only seven miles away from where my mom and dad live, in the same house where I grew up my entire life. So... Um, they've been in that house for over 40 years, still there. Um, so, you know, my childhood, I had, you know, a pretty big backyard. We, we had five acres, little ranch house on five acres. And my dad, uh, always grew a garden in the backyard that we, uh, helped out in, in the summer, whether we liked it or not. (laughs) (laughs) And the funny thing is, you know, when I was uh, probably eight, nine, ten years old, I hated working in the garden uh, with my parents. It was, as Kentucky is, it's very hot and humid in the summer, and I just thought it was miserable to be out there picking beans. Um, Not to mention that all children hate forced labor. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But, you know, where we grew up was kind of on the edge. It was out in a rural area, but not too rural. Like we were still close to town, but we were still out by farm. So it was kind of that cusp between being really far out there and being still close enough to where it wasn't so difficult to drive into Florence and see a movie or whatever, you know? Um, So yeah, I mean, it was a great childhood growing up. Like, uh, I was a happy kid. Uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I finished high school, but uh, it was uh, 
pretty important, you know, um, especially to my mom, who was a teacher, that I go to college, and I had always done pretty well in school, so I decided I was going to go that route, and I kind of decided I'm going to study biology um, because I thought I don't really know what I want to do as a career, but I could take a degree in biology and go lots of different ways with it. And I liked science. You know, I was like science and math and that kind of stuff. So it just seemed like a broad enough major to take on, um, you know, going into college that I would kind of figure it out along the way. And, you know, I sort of did, you know, I, I, uh, I ended up going to the University of Kentucky for college and studying biology and what I realized while I was there is I really liked studying ecology and conservation, anything having to do with outdoors and wildlife and the environment. And I kind of just stayed on that path and let it take me where it was going to take me, um, you know, until I kind of landed here about five or six years ago in what I see as my kind of lifelong career and pursuit now. Now, part of your studies Correct me if I'm wrong. You ended up basically doing some field research, did you not? As part of your yeah. your, your your senior thesis or part of your study, where you basically lived out in a cabin out in the middle yeah. of the woods, <laughs> and you're by no means a um, and don't take this personally. You're by no means a, a huge authoritarian type, you know, huge woman. <laughs> you're you're petite, rather short, and um, well, yeah. soft spoken, and your family's concerns are. The thought of you being out in a cabin miles away from any large city or even a hospital, you know, it concerned him a little bit, but you found independence and more importantly, yeah. you were surrounded by your your classroom. I mean, that was what you were wanting to study. Yes. And you probably Yeah, absolutely. And I would imagine not only did you learn a lot about what you were studying, but you probably learned a lot about yourself and what you were able to do when pushed into a corner. Yeah. Um so I ended up living in um, really far upstate New York in the Adirondack Mountains. And whenever you say New York, people always get the idea of New York City. But Mm -hmm. this is about as far on the other end of the spectrum, as you can imagine. Um, The Adirondack Park is one of the largest, most wild places, uh, you know, east of the Mississippi. Um, And I ended up, after I finished... um, you know, at UK, I ended up deciding to go to grad school, and I ended up in Syracuse, New York, and the school where I was studying had a forestry um, and wildlife research station in the Adirondacks, and so I ended up there. I got a job there. I lived on the property. It was a 15,000-acre property devoted solely to the study of forestry and wildlife, and yeah, I was in a cabin, and I didn't have any neighbors for miles. Um, I loved it. It was wonderful. But, uh, yeah, my dad would come to visit and be like, you need a gun and you got to keep all your doors locked. And, you know, he couldn't believe I was, like, living in this cabin, leaving all my doors unlocked. And, like, everybody around here leaves their doors unlocked, you know, because if you lock your door and you get locked out and it's negative 30 mm-hmm. in the winter, you're screwed. So you better leave your house unlocked so you can get in. Um, And not only that, but uh, kind of the rule of thumb, especially when you're out in rural areas such as that where, you know, black bear and brown bear are common or even cold weather are common. It's kind of the neighborly thing to do to leave your place unlocked. That way, if someone were to get lost or out in the woods injured 
and they come across yeah. your, your home and you're not there, they can find refuge inside and wait out the storm or, you know, even get in communication with help. And so it's... Yeah. Kind of... I... Go ahead. There's so many... I was going to say there's so many ways in which you're at the whim of nature in a place like that, whether it's the weather or animals um, or just isolation. Yeah. And it's, like you said, it's everybody keeps their doors unlocked because it's like you need you need to be able to take shelter if you need to. Now, when you were up but, in the um, woods doing your research, was there a particular, mm-hmm. um, were you primarily doing plant plant life or were you tracking animals and kind of following the habitats and learn, studying the, um, the natural, you know, instincts or what may have you of what the animals doing in that area? What was your, what did you spend most of your time up there studying? Well, I, I was studying ecology, and ecology is really about the interactions of everything, plants, animals, the environment. So it was all over the board. I helped out on a lot of different research projects um, from we were studying small mammals, so all the, you know, mice and voles and shrews and chipmunks and squirrels and everything that were living out in the forest um, and looking at how different logging techniques in the forest would affect those the populations of those animals. We were also looking at every fall the, you know, the amount of seeds, the seed rain that would come out of the trees, which is the food for all those small, little small mammals. Um, And so we were looking at from year to year, how does the amount of seeds produced from the trees affect the population of the small mammals from year to year up to the weasels that would eat the, you know, the mice, stuff like that. Um, we would do uh, track counts in the winter just to see what was out and moving around in the winter. Um, I've done owl surveys. It's it's been it's been all over the board. I worked on a snail project, so I really was exposed to a lot of different aspects of um, you know of both wildlife and plant life out there in the woods. And you know, I just I I I loved getting in more in tune with nature, you know, like really starting to see the bigger picture of all those processes that were going on, you know, out in the woods on a daily basis that, you know, maybe a lot of people wouldn't be exposed to unless they really stopped and paid attention to it. And so um, I think hand in hand with that, when when you're studying nature in that way, you start to think about, Okay, what am what as a human being, you know, what's my impact on all of this? And so, you know, I was doing science and I saw myself as a scientist, but I also thought, you know, is there another way? Like it, what else can I do with my daily life that would maybe bring about good for nature rather than be destructive or harmful or take away from all these really cool things that are going on out here? Um, on the land and you know I think that's what eventually set me down this path that I'm on now which is um, farming but I'm farming in a way you know that I think is um, more in tune with nature than maybe what people have pictured in their mind Um, you know farms can and farming can look a lot of different ways um, but it's really important to me that the way that I'm doing it is um, really diversified and kind of helping nature out 
or if at the very least not harming it. So. Well, you know, we all accept as a society, we've all accepted the concept that the beach recharges us. At least out here in Florida and California, we can all yeah. agree that the beach and the water recharges us. But what I think a lot of people tend to overlook, especially those who have never been in a country, those who grew up in a city, or those like myself who grew up in a country and then left, mm-hmm. the woods does the same thing as the beach does, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, yeah, yep. I mean, the quiet or even just the sounds of birds or... Or let's wind. get more scientific. I mean, it, it, what makes you yeah. feel better than tons of oxygen? What does trees produce? Yes. They consume carbon yeah. dioxide. They let off oxygen. And one of the things I rediscovered when I got into my reenacting hobby and I would go out and sleep on the ground underneath a 7-year-old piece of canvas is how much better I felt at the end of the weekend. I know that sounds weird. How can sleeping on the hard ground make you feel better? Well, no pun intended, yeah. <laughs> but you're grounded. You're getting back to your roots. Yeah. You're putting yourself yeah. into what we as a human species used to deal with back in our ancestor age, which is laying on the ground, you know, being yeah. around nature. You wake up early automatically. Anytime I go reenacting, I don't set my alarm clock. I automatically wake up at 4 or 5 in the morning. Yes, sometimes it's 52 degrees and it happens, but that's when the oxygen, that's when the animals, that's when... You get back to nature, and that's one of my favorite things about doing my reenacting is that is the only time people will accept the fact that I won't reply to their text because phones didn't exist in 1942. And so I can yes. go out and sleep on the ground. At the end of the day, when the public leaves, we all sit around a campfire. No phones. We play cards. We drink. We talk. We socialize like we used to before we all got inundated with technology. And so for those of you listening to this, if you haven't been camping since you were a kid or you haven't been out to the woods for more than an hour and a half when you take your kids to feed the deer, which you're not supposed to do in the city anyhow, I strongly <laughs> recommend you go out, go down to Walmart, buy yourself a cheap tent. You can get sleeping bags for like $10 a piece. Go camping. Get back to nature. It will recharge you, just like the beach does. But there's something more um, natural, ironically, or not ironically, about going camping, sleeping on the ground. Don't take the yoga mat. Don't take an air mattress sleeping bag or if you want to be hardcore a wool blanket and get back to your roots recharge i feel so much better when i spent two days sleeping on the ground i can't explain it but that's the way that it is absolutely and that's the, that was one of the things that when i lived up in the mountains um that kind of that was a side effect of you know i loved being there i loved being close to nature but one of the things was there was no cell phone service where I lived. Mm -hmm. You know, there was, uh, the grocery store was a 45 minute drive away. Um, you know, I could jump into a lake at the end of the day if I had a hot day or whatever. Like it, it was all right there. And I wasn't distracted by technology necessarily. You know, we had internet at my office where I would go in and work, but I didn't have it at home. And I picked up so many new skills and hobbies while I was living up there because, you know, I couldn't just flick on the TV. I couldn't start Googling something or go down a rabbit hole on Instagram or anything. You know, I, I started playing music. I had friends in town that would get together twice a week and play music and they handed me a bass guitar and they were like, Hey, we need somebody to play bass, learn to play this. And it's like, I gave myself the time to do that and the focus because there weren't as many distractions. And I think 
when I was there, it was in, you know, I, I was there in my mid to late 20s, which I think are really formative years where you're, yeah, you, you've kind of started down a path of work, and but you really are deciding what it is you want to do with your life, you know? And it's also, when you're living by yourself, um, you know, you really have to work on yourself and figure out who you are because you're by yourself a lot of the time. And I think that I'm really grateful for the time that I had there, not only because of what I learned from studying forestry and wildlife, but because I was kind of, kind of out there, like you say, after those two days in a tent, you feel different. You start thinking different. You think a little more clearly. You stop and listen to things. Uh, and I think that was a really wonderful time for me to spend a few years of my life there and kind of put me on a path where I felt more independent and more clearly focused on uh, paying attention to what it was that I wanted to do for work and with my life. Well, it's so crazy how, especially as we get to be adults and especially if you live in, you know, the city or the suburbs, how something as simple as grabbing a patch of grass people take for granted. And not to believe yeah. my reenacting stuff, but because I reenact and I spend time camping, and I'm sure you're the same way, if I'm out in the city and we're watching fireworks or we're outside watching a parade or whatever and everybody's standing up on a sidewalk, I'll look around, I'll find a patch of grass, and I'll just sit down and lay back in the grass. And people look at me like, what's this yeah. weirdo doing? It's like, what are you doing? You're the one standing up. Sit down, enjoy the grass, lay down. There's no dog poop. There's no fire ants. Yeah. Enjoy the grass. Pick it up, play with it. And just... You know, and I do know there's a movement of people, especially like in New York City or Chicago, where they will go to their local parks, kick off their shoes, kick off their socks, and they will walk around just to get some feeling of nature to them to help re revitalize them. Yeah. And so your time up in upstate New York came to a close, and you faced the one thing we all face at different points in our lives, and I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do until I was in my early 30s. But you, you started getting this inkling and this hankering to uh to change things up but but to still keep it natural in nature and mm -hmm. obviously with all your studying of wildlife and um botany and in all things of the environment you started to well obviously through that curriculum you begin to learn about a lot about plant life and how to and what type of soil they you know succeed in and the environment and all that so you already have this knowledge bill and like you said you decided you wanted to go about being a farmer what was the biggest yeah. hurdles when you finally decided to uh, plant your uh, pitchfork and throw in your overalls? Uh, there were, yeah, there were a lot of challenges. There's still a lot of challenges um, too. But um, you know, there one kind of step when I left upstate New York, I decided I really wanted. Um, like I said, I was by myself a lot, you know, living there, and I really wanted to still be focused on the outdoors and I wanted to, but I wanted to be around people my age again sure. <laughs> to have a little bit more social interaction. So I, I actually joined AmeriCorps, um, which if folks are not familiar with that, it's like the Peace Corps, but in the United States, it's like uh, you can volunteer for a year and you have, you know, food and room and board and you're doing service, but kind of all your daily needs are met. Um, and so I ended up doing that out in the Pacific Northwest in Washington State. And um, what we were doing, my group in AmeriCorps, was we were fixing 
trails um, out in wilderness areas and national forests. And so, again, I was like, I was outside, I had that nature contact, and it was very physical. Like, you know, we're swinging tools, we're packing stuff into the backcountry. And um, like you said, I'm not a very big muscular person, but I just really um, enjoyed knowing that I could challenge myself to do that and succeed. And then also trail work is so... um, it's so rewarding because you see maybe a really rutted out, worn out trail or there's been a fire in the area and like you need to open up a trail so people can get back out in the back country. And you can really see that tangible um, result at the end of the day. And I think um, that's something so I, we're missing out, not to interrupt you, but I think that's a key point and something we need to, to pause on for a second. I think that's one of the things that we miss in today's society, I mean, you hear that a lot with construction workers or people who build pools, anybody who does something with their hands, it's nice to show up at a day's worth of work and then step back and see something that was there that wasn't there that morning other than a stack of papers you printed out on a printer. And, yes. And I think... Yeah. And you can take a lot of pride in that work and know that somebody's going to benefit from it, not just you, you know, whether it's like you said, a pool, a road, a trail... You can be proud of the work, but you know, at the end of the day, you're going to walk away and somebody's going to be using that and enjoying it. And something and it's else. Be you... helping them. Go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, and helping them get from point A to B or whatever, whatever it is they need to do. And um, I think that is, like you said, it's, we don't, a lot of jobs now, you don't have that tangible product at the end of the day so it is it's a little more difficult I know it for me if I spend too much time inside on a computer you kind of hard to get the brain to shut down at the end of the day because uh, you kind of like there's no end to the work and yet you can't look back necessarily and show somebody hey here's what I did for the day whereas when I was doing trail work it was very easy at the end of the day to say hey like this is what we got accomplished. And by the way, I'm going to sleep really good mm-hmm. tonight because I know that I did a good job today. I accomplished a lot. And then let's not overlook the other thing you said, which I think is very important, which I believe is a result of why things like um, CrossFit, Savage Race, Tough Mudder, and all these obstacle courses are growing in popularity. And that is the sense of satisfaction and accomplishment one gets when they're able to do something that sucks, that's hard to do, but once they've completed doing that task, such as, oh, I don't know, digging, you know, like you said, a fire line or doing something yeah. like running five miles or doing one of these, um, you know, obstacle cor- course races, when you do something that's hard, that's uncomfortable, that can be time-consuming, take a while to do, and at the end of the day, you did it, and you say, wow, if you had told me four months ago I'd be doing this, I would have told you you're crazy. Or if you would have told me four months ago that I would run 14 miles in one day, I would have said you're off your rocker. And like I tell people yeah. when I go out running, I don't run for the feeling I get while I'm running because that feeling sucks. I run for the <laughs> feeling I get after the run is done, and I look back and say, wow, I just did that. Or, wow, I just built that. And I think that is something that we all need to find a little time in our busy schedule to do. If you're listening to this podcast and that's not something you've done, 
you rarely get out of your comfort zone. You rarely challenge yourself, whether it's physically or mentally. Maybe you're not a reader. Maybe you need to challenge yourself to read a, a you know a non-fictional chapter book. Something. Find something that you don't do on a regular basis or at all, and challenge yourself to do it because you you will a be surprised how easy it is to do because a lot of it's mental, just forcing yourself to do it. And two, the amount of accomplishment and self worth that comes from doing that, and not to mention how you're going to expand your 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 soul, how you're going to expand your intelligence, how you, if it's something physical, how your body responds. I mean, let's be honest, you're out there farming every day. You have no need to go to a gym, right? No. <laughs> if anything, I always say people should be paying to come out here and do farming CrossFit because it's like it, it's all the stuff you would do in CrossFit, but you're actually like helping me move stuff across the farm. <laughs> yeah, Annie doesn't flip a tire to get fit. She flips a tire because the tractor got a flat and she has to replace it with her dad. So, yeah. Um, and so, I think you're exactly right. Like at the end of those days, you feel so good and you really appreciate because you're like, you feel kind of uncomfortable uh, for a while while you're going through the work, but like. At the end of the day, at the end of trail work, at the end of the farm day, like that shower is like the best thing that ever mm -hmm. happened to you. Your meal tastes so good. You appreciate a bar of chocolate. You know, when I was doing trail work, um, you know, we wouldn't shower for four or five days at a time when we were out camping and working in backcountry. And you get in and you get your shower and you're like, you feel better than you've ever felt in your life, you know, and that first beer you crack you know you're just like you just appreciate everything beer hell let's go with more. just an ice cold clean <laughs> glass of water when you're out yes. there doing that sort of thing especially if you're you know you're like me you spend all weekend drinking out of a 75 year old metal canteen that come, water comes out of another can or you're out there hiking or living in you you start to realize how we even take for granted regular old city water People, oh, yeah. You drink water out of the tap? Well, if I drink it out of a 75-year-old canteen, you're damn straight. I drink it out of the tap. I mean, it's so funny. I yeah. hear people say, I can't stand drinking plain water. It's like, well, oh, clearly you've never been truly thirsty because once you put yourself in a position where you are truly thirsty, then you will gain appreciation for water. And actually, after a while, you will start to lose appreciation for the sodas and the junk beverages. Yeah. And, you know, it's like it's you kind of stand there sometimes, too. And you turn on, you just flip a switch and there's light. Or you turn on the faucet and hot water comes out, you know. And it's like, this is like truly, like these things are kind of magical that we have all of these at our fingertips. And you don't appreciate that till you don't have those creature comforts, uh, you know. Yeah, unfortunately, um, about two years ago, I got reminded of that for 16 days after Hurricane Irma. And I didn't have power and water because I'm on well for 16 days. And so being in the yeah. hot Florida sun... But you know what? We're digressing. So now you're back in northern Kentucky. You have a plan of attack. Uh -huh. You have something you want to do with your life. How do you go about mm -hmm. it? You know, because a lot of people listen to this podcast. They're, they're coming here for motivation. Maybe they have something they want to do in their yeah. life, but they don't know the first steps. And it's easy to, you know. So in your particular case, how did you get, you know, what was your first steps to achieving your goal? Well, I, when I finished up with the trail work, uh, one of the really amazing things was we you know we were cooking 
using whole ingredients and stuff, even the back country. And it was really important, the program that I was in, that they were sourcing a lot of the food locally from farms. And so I really started to make all these connections, right? Like I want to do something that keeps me outdoors, that's physical. I really want to eat in this way um, where I'm eating really good food, not a bunch of just like canned, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to use real ingredients. Uh, and I, I want to do something that at the end of the day that I can see has tangible results and, and actually helps people out. And so I, that's how all of those things sort of coalesced. And I, I knew what I really needed to do was to farm, you know, and uh, farm in a way that was going to be like I said, good good for the environment, good for Mother Nature. And, um, yeah, growing up in northern Kentucky, we had a garden in the backyard. I worked at um, McGlasson's Produce in Hebron. You know, it was a farm stand. But I didn't know anything about actually farming, about running a farm. Um, so I knew that the best way for me to figure this out was to actually just go work on a farm, and especially to go work on a farm that was, doing it the way I kind of wanted to do it. Um, and so I ended up working on a farm in Washington state for a couple of years as an apprentice. So, I mean, I was working on this farm. I was making $600 a month as an apprentice, but I had all the food I needed and I had a house there. And so it wasn't about, I wasn't motivated by the money. I was motivated to learn every single piece of the farm, you know, learn how to sure. run my own farm just by being out there and doing and, you know, that used to be the way that a lot of people learned their trade was to work under a master carpenter or blacksmith. And, you know, it was very much like that situation. I was working on a farm for a couple that had been running this farm for about six or seven years. They were very successful. They were selling a lot of produce into into Seattle. And um, I just immersed myself in it. And it took about two years. And at that point, I was just I was really ready to start my own farm. You know, I was pretty fired up. I um, thought, you know, I've only been doing this for two years, but, you know, I think a lot of times people get stuck waiting for the right moment or waiting to have the right amount of money to do Mm -hmm. something or waiting until X, Y, or Z happens. And it's like, you really, you'll spend your whole life waiting for the right moment. You know, and it's just like you kind of have to just jump and you're going to screw some stuff up and you maybe might not know everything or you might not have all the resources you need. But if you believe in yourself, then you know that you're going to find a way to make it work. And that's just what I did. I moved back home to northern Kentucky and I needed to find a place to farm so I lined up a place to lease. Like I didn't even have, I didn't have any tools of my own. I had not, I did not even own a shovel. You know, I had saved up some money um, enough that I thought could get me through the first few months of setting up the farm because, you know, you're not going to have a tangible product to sell for several months. Sure. Um, and it was a lot of, you know, asking for help and a lot of people, you know, the wonderful thing about moving home to Northern Kentucky is having a great network of, family and friends that I had grown up with here that offered help in whatever way they could, you know, whether that was like borrowing somebody's 
tractor or a tool to do something, um, you know, burn a truck to haul something from here to there, uh, all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, you just have to be, I think you have to know you're going to make mistakes and also like not be too hard on yourself when you do make mistakes because that's just the learning process. And so, of course, I look back to the first year and think, oh, yeah, like I messed a lot of things up, but I I wouldn't have learned those lessons otherwise. Um, I still make mistakes. You know, I try to grow a certain new crop and it fails, you know, but it's you have to just pay attention to what you're doing and pay, pay attention uh, to the results and just try again until you get it right. Well, and know? there's a reason why when you're reading stories or writing stories or telling stories, the wise person's always old. You'll never read a story about a yeah. young wise person. <laughs> there's no such thing as a young 13-year-old wise man or wise girl living on top of a mountain where yeah. everybody seeks answers. No, wisdom comes with age, but more importantly, experience. And um, yep. and so that, that experience is something you have to earn. And that's why as we all get older, we all just kind of shake our heads when we see young people doing silly things. And one of the one of the things I have coined is one of the biggest practical jokes God has played on man is regardless of what age you are, when someone else older than you tells you not to do something because they've already done it and it's not going to turn out the way you planned, you just assume that they're old, they don't know what they're talking about, it, and they're going to do it better. And lo and behold, it blows up in your face and they are right at the beginning. But it doesn't matter if you're 12 and they're 18 or you're 18 and they're 30 or you're 40 and they're 60. It's just one of the things we have to figure things out for ourselves despite people's best efforts who are older than we are telling us not to do something because it's not going to work. But we don't listen. It's just the biggest practical <laughs> joke that's ever been played on us. We will not ever listen. I think there's a lot to that for sure. Uh, and, yeah, you have to kind of put yourself through the trial. But you're right. It's uh, definitely I got a lot of advice. You know, even from my dad, like with his garden and stuff at the beginning. And it's like, no, I want to do it my way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I got to figure this out my way. And um, for sure, if I could go back and change some things, I would. But at the same time, I think I had to. You don't really know what you're doing until you kind of get down the path and you look back and you're like, oh, yeah, I had, I had to do it. I had to do it that way to get where I am now, you know. So. And so you go back to northern Kentucky, but you've been gone a while, and technology changes. And with technology, there comes new infrastructure, and northern Kentucky is blowing up right now. Anything I order, if you go to Digital 410, my website, you go to failtofail.com, you go to d-410.com, you order one of our shirts, they come from Hebron, Kentucky. Most of my Amazon packages mm -hmm. come out of Florence and Erlanger. That area is blowing up in the warehouse, in the tech industry, because it's right on the main interstate. Semi-trucks have direct access. They can get, and it's not to mention, it's right in the middle of the Midwest. And so all the farmlands that you and I used to look at growing up, they're being sold off. As I said at the beginning of this, a lot of those are uh, private neighborhoods, but more sadly, a lot of them are turning into warehouses, manufacturing plant, which is good when it comes to employment, but... It, it's it's bad when it's a person like yourself who's looking for farmland 
and you finally you, you kind of realize that okay one there's less farmland available and the farmland that is available the price either it's been in the same family for years and they're not selling or the or the price is through the roof and so how did you how did you get past that hurdle uh you i mean you hit the nail on the head it's that's one of my main challenges here is uh as a beginning farmer trying to find land um you know the way i've uh, you know, face that challenge to this point is I've just leased property. So this is my sixth year um, doing my farm here in northern Kentucky. This is the second property I've been on, um, and I and I rent from year to year. And it's one of the tough things about doing that is, you know, when you're farming, you're in it for the long haul. And it's really important to take really good care of your soil. You know, as somebody who studied biology, ecology, I know there's a whole ecosystem in the soil, and that's what's feeding my plants. Um, you know, and if we're going to have any resiliency at all uh, to weather events or anything at all, you know, you have to have a healthy soil for your plants. And so a lot of that is building your soil with compost, um, tilling in a way that is more gentle on the soil. You know, for me, I avoid any chemicals um, at all just because I'm trying to keep life in my soil and for my plants. And, you know, for me to do that for three year, years, build soil, move to another place. And start all you know, over. Yeah, you're starting over. And um, I would love to be on a permanent piece of land and not only for, for the for the purpose of building soil, but also I'd love to plant some fruit trees or have animals or some other perennial plants that come back year to year. But, you know, when you're kind of stuck in the cycle of renting, you don't have that long-term promise that, you know, if I plant this tree, that's not going to bear fruit for several years. You know, why would I do that if I don't know for sure I'm going to be here for several years? So, yeah, I, I would love to be able to find farmland, but you're exactly right. You know, a lot of the fa the names, the family names around here that have been here for generations farming, they're going to hold on to their mm -hmm. land. Um, and there are a lot of farms for sale, but they're priced way beyond what a farmer could pay for that. And they're priced for developers, whether yeah. that's a subdivision, like you said, or, you know, more so now for um, industrial warehousing. Um, and, that's my main challenge to overcome now is to figure out how to make farming and land ownership work in an area like this when land is valued for more than than agriculture. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think if you ask anybody around here, people have a lot of respect, I think, for farmers and for farming families, and they like to know that there's local agriculture going on in their community. And I think we have to figure out a way that we can kind of coexist. We can have some of the more modern, you know, industrial uh, businesses and jobs, but not at the expense of seeing all the farms disappear. Because, you know, uh, if you don't have people growing food in your community, you have to have it shipped from somewhere else. And so when you have something like you had, where everything shut down for a couple mm -hmm. weeks after a hurricane or storm or something, you know, 
you got to be able to rely on the people around you to produce. Everybody needs to eat every day, you know, so you got to have food in your community. Um, and um, well, let's not overlook the think- importance of flavor. And here's what I say to I know you know what I'm talking about. For those of you who, who said, what are you talking about? Go down to Walmart, go down to your big box stores, and go buy a pack of grapes. They're super huge, they're inflated, but they have no flavor. They are so genetically modified, they just taste like little water bombs. Um, the bigger the vegetable, the bigger the fruit, the less flavor it has because they've been so genetically modified. And more importantly, we all know when it comes to bourbon or to cores or to beer or to um, what have you, the flavor comes from the soil. And like you were saying before, you spend all this time preserving your soil, planting your soil, rotating your crops, tilling it a proper mm-hmm. way. But the part of your brand for what you do, obviously, is the quality of what you're putting out, the color of what you're putting out, but more importantly, the taste. And so that a lot of that taste comes from the soil in which those plants are planted in. And so when you're picking up and moving, whether it's two blocks away or five miles away that can affect the taste of your crop and then you're starting all over again and you're trying to build a brand and that flavor is a huge part of it yeah for sure and especially you know part of my business is selling to restaurants in Mm -hmm. northern kentucky and cincinnati and that's number one the quality of the produce not just how it looks i mean they're going to chop up that onion or they're going to chop up a you know bell pepper whatever tomato but they want the flavor. And so a lot of that, like you said, exactly comes from tending to the soil. Um, and a lot of it also comes from, you know, not overwatering and not over fertilizing your crops because it's like you say, the produce that you get in a grocery store, they want it to be as big as possible because they the weigh more, then they get more money for it. But if that is all water, you're not actually, I mean, you're just getting a diluted. Mm-hmm. The flavor's diluted, the nutrients are diluted, all of that. And so, um, you know, it is very important to me that the produce is not only tastes good and looks good, but it's also really good for you, that it's nutrient-dense. You know, that when you eat food from my farm, you're doing a lot of good for your body, you know, and I really feel like, you can farm in such a way that you can do all the, you can check all those boxes. You can have delicious food. It can be really good for you and it can be doing good for the environment. I mean, if you walk out on the farm right now, you'll see so many different bees, pollinators, butterflies. I mean, all these insects and birds, everybody wants to be <laughs> on the farm because mm-hmm. you have all these plants flowering, there's no chemicals out there, no pesticides, no herbicides. Um, You know, it's a happy place to be for if you're a a wild insect, you know, and that's part of what we want to do too is we want to have a really diversified uh, set of crops so that we're attracting really good, you know, native pollinators into the garden um, and that uh, I was just talking about uh, this with a friend. I just heard on the radio they were saying that there's a fusarium, like a fungal wilt disease that's hitting bananas in Central America that's mm. never been there before, and yeah. it could, like, decimate the banana population. And then, you know, you can't just walk into the grocery store and get your banana anymore. Um, nope, we'll all be stuck eating plantains. I was about the farmers, you know, and, like, how that would be devastating for them. But, you know, that's the, 
you kind of get backed into a corner when you only grow one thing mm-hmm. because it takes one disease or one pest invasion to wipe you out, you know. But if you grow several crops and you lose one, it's not as big of a deal as if you're only growing one one crop. Well, and, and the nice thing, and you touched on a little bit, and we're going to jump into it right now, is you're in northern Kentucky, which is on the other side of the river of Cincinnati. And interestingly enough, I heard Emilio Estevez, he was on the Adam Carolla podcast all about two months ago, and he said that his family is from Ohio. His mom's from Dayton, and his dad's from somewhere else in Ohio. And he has these roots that Ohio brings him back. And he's buying up property all over Cincinnati because he said Cincinnati in 2019 is like New York City in 1960. Property is still mm-hmm. available. You can walk around. Everything's close. It's booming. It's thriving. It's a hit place to be. And since you have people like Emilio Estevez and all these investors coming because Northern Kentucky is blowing up in the tech center and all that, Cincinnati's blown up. You, as a small farmer and as someone who specializes in the things you do, you went, you started out like most farmers do at the farmer's market, but at some point word got around. And like you said, a lot of these little niche, um, up and coming, I don't want to say hipster, but you know, these hip cool places to go, these restaurants, they, they kind of found you and you're starting to become their primary vendor, correct? Yeah, I, you're right. I did start out the first, uh, my first year I was just solely selling at the farmer's market. And that's because I, I having learned most of my farming in Seattle, I knew moving home to Kentucky, I needed to give myself a year to figure things out. And I didn't want to promise any vegetables to anybody. I just wanted to, whatever was good, I'll show up at the farmer's market and sell it. And I met a ton of people that way. Um, not only like individual household, mem- like customers that just want to buy to cook at home, but also chefs. You know, chefs, they go to the farmer's market because they know that's where the quality product is. And I met some chefs and started selling to restaurants. And then that's really picked up a lot and I don't even do the farmer's market anymore. I'm, I just sell directly to restaurants and then I have a community supported agriculture program, but the chefs, especially if it's an independently owned restaurant, Mm -hmm. the chefs have a lot more latitude in their purchasing. Um, and so a lot of the restaurants that we work with are like chef owned restaurants. They're not like a corporate chain restaurants. Of course we do work with them sometimes, but a lot of times, for them, the bottom line is like cheapest, you know, cheapest ingredients that we can get. Um, whereas if you're working with an independent restaurant, and there's a lot of them popping up in Cincinnati, really good food scene popping up, um, you're going to meet those chefs that want to get the best tasting product. And they're going to want to work with somebody like me who's kind of growing on a small scale and, you know, can pick up the phone and talk to them or text or email or whatever, say like, this is what, this is what's super fresh, this is what's seasonal, this is what tastes the best on the farm right now. Um, and so you really develop a relationship. It's not just, you know, not just the transaction, it's working kind of one-on-one with those chefs to, to really bring the best ingredients possible to their, to their menus. Now, have you had one of your existing chefs come to you and say, Annie, I know you don't grow this particular produce, but there's something I want to put new on the menu. Do you have room on your farm to maybe start dipping your toes into this product, uh, this plant, what have you? Have you done any sort of specialized uh, farming or, you know, kind of breeding of plants to uh, help fulfill the needs of some of those little niche restaurants? 
Yeah, for sure. I've tried. Um, I definitely every winter when it's a little slower at the restaurants and like for the farm, I will sit down with the chefs that I work with and ask them about um, herbs or uh, vegetables that they would like to see that I could try. I mean, you're always like bounded by your climate. So there's just certain things I can't grow here necessarily. Um, but I'm always willing to try new things. And then, so I've ended up growing one of the herbs that I grow now. It's called shiso. It's used a lot in Japanese cooking, but, um, you know, I had certain chefs asking me about it and I tried it and it grows really well here, especially in the summer. And so I grow it now and I have a lot of restaurants that buy it from me because it's not necessarily something they can just get anywhere. You certainly can't walk down to Kroger and so you know you have to have a specialty grower willing to do that and so I really love doing that because it challenges me to try out a new a new product um, and learn about it and its biology and how well it's going to grow here and at the same time kind of fill that need for a restaurant and but I will say that a lot of the the chefs that are truly invested in the idea of supporting local farms and kind of farm to table food they're kind of like whatever you grow, we'll buy it. You know, like you tell us what's good. And so it's really great to meet somebody who has that mindset. And I think if they're a really skilled chef and they're flexible, they will know what to do with what you bring them that's in season. And I think that the food speaks for itself. You know, when you have great quality ingredients and then you have a really skilled chef, like you're going to taste that uh, in your meal. Well, the nice thing about having that clientele too, well, two, a few things. One, you don't have to worry about, um, am I going to be able to sell all this product to farmer's market this week and am I going to make my money back? Two, um, they understand the effort, energy, and the amount of work that goes into coming up with that produce. And so they're not trying to lowball you and getting the lowest prices. And so you can actually you know, have a little bit of a better margin and to invest into um, more equipment, more plants, and all that. But three... Um, much like anything else, supply and demand. If more and more chefs are coming to you, but you only have so much product, you can raise those prices to adjust for that demand. And the ones who have been coming to you for the longest time, they will understand that, and they will uh, help you meet the cost that you uh, you need to sell your product at. Yeah, and I think especially when you're working with people that are independent business owners, they look at you and know you are an independent business owner too. And you know, they know I'm not trying to necessarily gouge them on prices. We're just trying to, you know, charge what we need to charge to be able to keep the farm afloat. Um, you know, I don't, I never looked at going into farming as a way of making a, a ton of money. I just wanted it to be solved. <laughs> you know, I just wanted to be in the black every year because a lot of farms, you know, the average farm in the U.S. Um, uh, nets, negative $1,300 a year, which is crazy. You know, most farmers are operating in the red every year on average. And so for me, the fact that I can even make a little bit of money when it's all said and done at the end of the year is is a big win for me. And choosing to farm is kind of, it's choosing a lifestyle. You know, this allows me to go out and work outside every day, be in nature, to observe, to interact, to, um, eat wonderful meals three times a day. So it's about a way that I can live my life. And at the same time, I don't have to commute in and 
necessarily have an office job to support my addiction to farming and living on a farm, you know, it's like, I, I need this to pay for itself. Um, and so I've always looked at it as I do have to run this as a business and I have to pay attention to prices and I have to make the smartest moves. And so for one of, for me going from the farmer's market to selling directly to restaurants, that was a smart business move for me because it's like you say, you just work all day long, show up at the farmer's market. And if nobody shows up to buy it, you're going home with all that at the end of the day. And so I, I quickly realized, you know, I needed for a small farm like me, I needed to work directly with customers that were going to order what they want. I'd pick the order. There's very little waste now going out and harvesting um, or trying to sell stuff. It's, it's sold before we even pick it. Um, and so that really allows me to be more efficient and to make this business work so that I can keep doing it. Now, I know like a year ago, the local Cincinnati newspaper did an article on you about uh, successful women in northern Kentucky. And one of the questions you said in there that you get asked quite a bit, or at least at the time, and I don't know if this was during your first um, land rental or your second, is that people kept asking you, well, you're only farming an acre of land. Why don't you go bigger? Why don't you go bigger? And your kind of answer is because I can achieve what I want to achieve and I can manage what I have at this size and I have no interest in going bigger. Do you still feel that way? Yeah, I, one of the things that I always say when people say that is um, I would rather there be more farmers like me on an acre than for me to be in charge of, you know, 50 acres. Um, you When you scale up in that way, you know, it's a whole, a lot of it has to be mechanized. You have to have mm -hmm. a big pool of employees. And I think there's merit in it for sure. And I think that some people are really attracted to that scale of farm. And like, if we're going to feed, if we're going to grow good, good food for schools or hospitals, we have to have farms that size growing produce. But for me, the scale that I'm at really fits my personality. You know what I mean? And it, it sure. makes me happy and it works. Whereas I feel like I'd be out of my comfort zone you know, running a giant farm. And so for me, it's more important to um, work at this scale that I know is right for me and kind of right for my clientele. Um, but also I feel it's really important to promote um, farming to people that are interested in getting into it and want to make that leap. And so, you know, I employ a few people on the farm every year and, in a way, I'm kind of looking at it as a turnaround from I was a princess on a farm. You know, that's how I learned. I apprenticed on somebody's farm. I want to give people the opportunity now to learn how to farm, too. And to, to have a more one-on-one -on -one type of relationship with my employees. Um, you know, and my, my friend Chris worked with me the first four years on the farm, and then he went home. He's from Utah. He went home and started his own farm, you know. So even if it's just one person at a time every few years, if we could spin off some like new farmers and have another small farm out there, then to me, that's a, that's a huge success um, as well. And I, I know myself, I know through all the work I've done that I want to be the one out there, outside doing the farming, seeing the results, hands in the soil. And I worry about if I get too big, then do I just become a manager? You know what I mean? And, and, lose that contact with what it was that got me doing this in the first place. Now, if, um, if you were to come across a young lady or even, you know, just a, a regular age, you know, 
a woman of any age of that matter, and they're telling you that, hey, I have an interest in something I want to do, but it's really more of a man's market or, you know, something that's mm -hmm. more in the men's world, quote unquote, whether it's, you know, farming, wanting to be a mechanic, wanting to start my own, you know, company where I take down old barns and, you know, refurbish the wood and resell it. But um, I'm a little nervous and, you know, how, how can I expect to succeed in that world? What advice would you give them? That's a good question. I I guess for myself, I never saw being a woman as a barrier to anything that I wanted to do. You know, when I when I was studying in school, studying biology and ecology, there was a big push to, to get more women in science, you know, and yet I think that a lot of doors were opening because of the pioneering work that some women had done before, being the first woman into, you know, I worked for a woman who was the first woman hired into the fisheries department at her, at the college, you know, um, and because of that, it opened a lot of doors for other people. And yeah, I mean, uh, women run farms are in the minority, but there are more and more women run farms coming around now. Um, and I think that people really just need to follow their hearts and their passion as to the kind of work they want to do on a daily basis. And if it is a quote unquote, like, man's job like I think just forge ahead and um you know you somebody has to like break those barriers for it to be more open for more women um in uh like male-dominated workforces and I think that um really like networking it's been I the farm I worked at in Seattle was run by husband and wife but I um, the wife was really the one who kind of started the business up and then her husband to spend more time with her had to come help out on the farm sure. and learned that he enjoyed it. And so I think, you know, part of the reason I was drawn to working at that farm was I was, it was a woman, she was only a few years older than me who had started up a farm. And I really looked towards her mentorship to see how this could be done, you know, and talking to other female farmers you know, when I was out and about at the farmer's market or even here when I moved to northern Kentucky, Kentucky, connecting with some women farmers, I think you got to expand your network and look for those colleagues. Um, and especially if you feel like you're in the minority, you know, you got to seek out those uh, people who are doing, doing what you want to do, you know. Um, and I, I would say there's, you know, there's no limit to what you can achieve if you really are passionate about it. And so I wouldn't let any doors close on you just because you're a woman or, or whatever, you know, fill in the blank minority in a certain type of career path. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think more important than sex or race, especially now in 2019, the two things that are going to lead you to success or cause you to fail confidence and social interaction we have a yeah. huge decline, especially with the younger generation who grew up on phones. I was talking about this on my podcast last night. The expediter at the local Starbucks, he talked like this. And so people's orders were sitting in there getting cold because he was too afraid to say, hey, and what one at my local Starbucks, they stopped asking people's names. So I won't even get started on that. But instead of calling out, yeah. triple grande white mocha hot, ready. It's a triple white grande. And so people, and one lady, yeah. one lady said, hey, I'm waiting on my egg whites. And he, he whispered something and she... Ten, five, five minutes later, she followed him down there, and he walked up, and it had been sitting in front of her the whole time. But because he's so afraid to enunciate and to talk to strangers, 
This poor lady's food was sitting there getting cold because it was sitting in front of her because she didn't hear him call up the food was. And I know there was a story of about two years ago, Washington State Police, I believe it was, the police academy, they were having problems with their cadets. They had no social interaction skills. So what they actually had to do is create a new curriculum at the police academy where they were taking these recruits down to the local mall in plain clothes and forcing them to walk up to strangers and just have regular conversation and make eye contact. Because if you're going to be in law enforcement, your number one role is being able to talk to people. And not only in law enforcement, and no matter what you do, could you imagine trying to create the relationships you have now when you first started the farmer's market or volunteering at farms if you were bashful, kept yourself, and you didn't ask questions or get involved in people's conversations? Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's impossible to go to the farmer's market if you don't like talking to people. You're not going to sell any vegetables. so It's impossible yeah, to be you've gotta, successful. You've got to do it whether you like it or not. <laughs> I think the only place you're going to succeed in this world as a recluse is computer programming. Other than that, you've got to be able to talk to people. It doesn't matter what the job is. Confidence and social interaction will get you most of the way home. And then, obviously, you've got to have self-motivation and a motor and good work ethic. With all that yeah, stuff, I think you're, you're, you're it, halfway home. I think you're totally right. And I do think a lot of the success of my farm so far is just the relationships that have been built. You know what I mean? With um, we, we haven't even really talked that much about the community-supported agriculture program that I run, but it's about relationships with the people buying the food from you. You know, and they could buy... There are so many options for buying food now, like Kroger. You can you can order your stuff online and have it put into mm -hmm. your trunk. You can have it delivered to your door. So why is somebody going to take that extra effort to get it from a farm? You know, it's about the relationship and wanting to support me as a farmer and getting a good quality product. You know, there, there has to be a reason for them to want to do it. And if you don't build those relationships, then it's easy to get food somewhere else. You know, um, so you've got to put yourself out there. And luckily for me, I've never really had a problem with that. I'm more of an extroverted personality. I've met a lot of introverts working on farms because it's a great place to just go get lost in a kale patch. And, there you go. <laughs> you know, not just do whatever you want to do. But I will say it also is a place where people aren't on their phones. You don't have technology in your face. You know, it is a time... All the farms I've worked on, I've connected with my coworkers and my bosses because you, you're kind of stripped down to just like, yeah, we're out here, we're doing hard work, we're in nature, but we're going to talk to each other while we're at it, you know? And um, so I think it's a good place to be, whether you have a propensity to be extroverted or introverted, but for sure when it comes to moving those vegetables and selling them, you've got to build relationships. You've got to, you've got to be able to talk to people one-on-one. -on -one. You've got to look them in the eye, and you've got to be able to tell them the story of why why they should be buying your produce instead of somebody else's. Well, let's take a few minutes before I let you go and talk about your community-supported agri agricultural program. How did that start, and uh, what does people do to get involved in, in your local area? Yeah, um, so... The farm that I worked on in Seattle had a community-supported agriculture program, a CSA for short. Um, and what the way that that program works is um, individuals sign up with the farm at the beginning of the year. So they decide at the beginning of the year they're going to support a local farm and a local farmer. 
And um, they basically pre-buy their vegetables for the season. And so in a lot of ways, it's like a magazine subscription. You kind of pay up front, and then you get your allotment of vegetables every week. And so here in Kentucky, I can grow uh, produce reliably for about half the year, like in quantity. So folks can sign up with our farm uh, at the beginning of the year, and then starting mid-May, they get a box of vegetables uh, every week. And in that box, you're going to get a wide variety of what's growing on the farm, whatever's best and most beautiful and, you know, most abundant at the time. And so it switches up from week to week. So beginning, middle of May, you get a box of vegetables. You get another one every single week um, until right up until Thanksgiving. And so in that way, Buying the veggies ahead of time really helps me as a farmer because there's a lot of upfront costs every spring to buy all my amendments for soil, to buy my seed, to buy any supplies I need. And you spend a lot of time and labor. You know, I'm I'm paying people to help me here on the farm, getting all those crops in the ground before you ever have anything you can harvest off of it. And so um, by entering into this relationship with individual customers that want to support a farm, you know, they're really helping us out at the beginning of the year, and then they reap the benefits by getting a share of the harvest every week. Um, and what I've heard from the people that participate, and right now we have 50 households, um, you know, off our little one acre, we're sending vegetables every week to 50 households. You know, it really challenges people to eat locally, to cook more. Um, they know they're getting a good, clean, quality product. They make new recipes. I also send a newsletter every week that says, hey, this is what you're getting this week. Here's some great recipe ideas. Here's also what's happening on the farm. So it's a lot about that relationship building. Like People know about the farm they're supporting. They feel like truly a member of the farm. Um, and uh, it changes the way that they eat. It changes the way that they cook at home. Hopefully it changes the way they sit down and interact you know, with, the, with their family members or members of their household um, around a meal. Um, and hopefully it changes the way that they think about farming and agriculture in their community. Um, and by supporting my farm, you're supporting, you know, one good acre of agriculture. And so if we if we kind of had a system that was more like that, a lot of people directly supporting a farm, think about the acreage of farmland mm-hmm. people could help preserve and kind of support um through their through their like weekly food dollars that they could be spending somewhere else now you said you you're sending produce out that i'm assuming that means mm-hmm. are you doing it through shipping companies or just a local driver i mean I, I guess my my final the reason i ask is what is the range in which you support are people all local do, so, you, do you mail two hours away what you know people want like for example we have a lot of listeners up in columbus ohio northern kentucky if people want to support mm-hmm. you what range how close do they got to live to your to your farm in order to do so? So um, we send vegetables out um, to Cincinnati and Northern Kentucky. And the way that it works is we actually do the deliveries, but um, we don't deliver direct to a single household. We have neighborhood pickup spots. So, um, you know, we have one in Union. Uh, We can pick up here on the farm. We have one in Covington. We have some in neighborhoods in Cincinnati as well. And, um, the way that it works out is normally, you know, a CSA member, normally people who've been doing this 
for a couple years in a row, we'll offer up, hey, you can use my porch as a pickup spot, and my neighbors that live, you know, around me and want to participate can pick up right here on my porch. So we'll deliver, for example, we, when we go to Union, we have 10 shares, you know, 10 boxes that we drop off on a porch, and then folks come and pick up between 4 and 8 p.m., and it's every Tuesday. And so they don't have to drive a long way, you know, they, they can choose the neighborhood they want to pick up in that's closest to them. Um, and, uh, and in a way, too, it kind of helps you to get to know your neighbors a little bit more. Like, I know uh, our, uh, our CSA member in Covington that hosts as a pickup spot, sometimes he'll just go sit on the porch with his grandson just to talk to the other CSA members that come to pick up their, <laughs> their boxes, you know, get to know the neighbors a little bit more. And so, um, yeah, it's not as easy as delivering right to your door, but it, it is with, within, you know, a short drive and at a neighborhood location. Well, not only are you delivering fine product, produce, but you're also building community, which is something that's lacking in our country nowadays. If somebody's in the northern Kentucky area and they're interested in joining, becoming a member of your CSA, where would they go? Um, the first place to go is just to go to our website. So the, the farm is Darkwood Farm, and our um, our web address is darkwoodfarmstead.com, like homestead, but a farm. Um, and you can uh, browse around there. We have a link specifically about the Community Supported Agriculture Program. And tomorrow we send out our 13th week of boxes for the season. And so we have 13 more weeks to go for the rest of the season up until Thanksgiving. Um, and uh, a lot of people like to think that, you know, at least if you have a home garden, you probably just plant it once for the season, pick what's there, and then you're done. But we're still planting. We will go. We will have produce until December at least. And if it's a mild winter, some of our produce will go through into January, even February. Um, so um, even though it's the height of tomato season and everything now, we still have many more weeks to go uh, for, the, for the rest of the growing season. Now, I know you have a pretty active Instagram page. If people want to follow you on Instagram, mm -hmm. where would they go? Um, I, on Instagram, I'm Darkwood Farmer. Now, I was up in Kentucky, northern Kentucky, last summer, and I got to go down to my favorite place that was recently rebuilt after burning to the ground. That is the Rabbit Hash General Store. Yes. And I got to tell you, I was name dropping. I was talking to the lady at Rabbit Hash, and I said, do you know Annie Woods? She's like, yes, I do. She comes up here and plays bass when we have our farm uh, parties. I said, that's my cousin. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Annie is my cousin. That's how we've known each other for so long. And, yes. Uh, she is my cousin, and we are so proud of her. Let me ask you a question, Annie. Um, just recently, I got hired on. I just did my first job as a background actor on a TV show that's coming out in 2020. It's a big, big project. But I was talking to the assistant director, and he was asking me, you know, because this is a military-based TV show, and I'm talking to him. I'm in my uniform. I'm playing the role of a Navy officer. And he looked at me and said, are you in the military? And I said, no, I'm a, I'm a living historian. This is what we do. I'm used to wearing uniforms. And he's from Europe. He's like, I'm not familiar with that term. I said, well, I do World War II reenacting. He's like, well, I'm interested in that. Let me come find you later. And he left. And I thought he was just being nice to the background actor. And he actually tracked me down. Now, this is the director of the, the episode I'm, I'm working background on. And he comes up to me and says, hey, Dan, tell me more about this living history stuff. 
<laughs> now I've had teachers call me Dan that I've had for years. Now Dan and Don is easily interchangeable. Now obviously I didn't correct the director. I told him what the World War II stuff was, and he looked at me and said, I like you. I want to have you back for more episodes. And in my head, I'm thinking, great, but you don't know my name. So I ask you this. That's to, awesome. I tell you that to say this. One, I'm sure he'll track me down because wardrobe has photos of me for continuity purposes in my uniform, and they'll probably say there's no Dan, but there's a Don. But we talked about this on my podcast, and on the casting company's website, there is a spot for a screen name. And I thought about doing this when I first started my podcast. How would you feel about me going with my middle name and our grandfather's first name, Preston, instead of Don Abernathy, if I go with Preston Abernathy? I love that name. I thought about <laughs> going full-blown yeah. Preston Woods, but the reason I want to hold on to the Abernathy and the other reason I want to go with the screen name is there is already a successful screenwriter named Don Abernathy in Hollywood. He's an African-American gentleman, so clearly people won't confuse us that much, but when they're Googling a name, I don't want people to think I'm this successful screenwriter and I'm nothing more than just a background actor. And two, Abernathy already has a name. You know, that's Martin Luther King's best friend was Robert Abernathy. That's why there's an Abernathy Boulevard in Atlanta. There's an Abernathy Boulevard in Naples, Florida. So clearly I want to hold on to the Abernathy side. But what do you think of Preston Abernathy? I love it. Honestly, I, I really love the name Preston. And it's, you know, all throughout our family, there's men with Preston in their name. And... Um, I, I think it's not that common of a name, and so it kind of stands out uh, a little bit, and I, I really like it. Um, it does have a Hollywood sound and, to it, too. Preston. Yeah. Well, I uh, I actually, I was driving the other day over on the Ohio, Ohio side of the river, and I um, passed a subdivision, a subdivision called Coleman Woods, and I was like, what? Nice. That's, that's our grandfather's middle and last name, Colt, Preston Coleman Woods, so... I just thought that was so funny to be driving around and see that on the big marquee on a subdivision, Coleman Woods, um, which is also another name that Coleman that goes around in our family and the men in our family. But it was really important to me um, when I was naming the farm, I wanted to pay homage to our family name. And so I was thinking about something Woods, something, and I, I really liked the idea of like a, like a, I didn't have a specific piece of family land to move back to and start my farm Sadly. you know and so I wanted to have the name in there somehow um but I also wanted it to pay homage to like what my end goal was right like to have a beautiful piece of land that had a lot of forest on it you know yeah it's a farm but it's mostly wild you know that was my idea and so that's kind of how I ended up on dark wood farm and I thought about dark woods farm but and Darkwood Farm rolled off the tongue a little bit more, but it was important to me to have a piece of the family name in there, you know, somehow. And it's not only on our side of the family that we have a farming history, you know, um, dairy farming, um, mm -hmm. but on the other side of my family, um, you know, um, my great-grandmother and grandfather on my mom's side had a little farm not too far from where I grew up and so I, I wanted to make sure that the family history was in there somehow you know absolutely I think it's a great name I've always loved the name it's Annie Woods she's my cousin but more importantly she is one badass farmer she's a strong independent woman <laughs> she's successful in everything she does and she is the key supplier to some of the better higher-end restaurants throughout Cincinnati and Covington 
who knows, maybe Emilio Estevez is eating your, your produce while uh, eating out downtown. You can find our dark You know what? It's Go ahead. so funny. I actually was dropping off at a bakery one day in Over the Rhine, and Emilio Estevez came out with a loaf of bread from the bakery. So I'm I telling you, he said him. he loves Cincinnati. <laughs> he spent six to seven months out of the year there. He's actually talking about um, building his production company there. He's going to start filming out of Cincinnati. He said it reminds him of New York. He walks everywhere. People are great to him. They don't harass him. And he says just like being in New York in 1960, he is completely over the moon with Cincinnati. And I think that's great. And I will say that most of the people that I know who've had him come into their restaurant or whatever say he's the nicest guy you can ever be. So... Uh, it's really great that he's advocating for the city and he's doing it through actually being part of the community. So. Well, Andy, thank you so much for joining us on the uh, fourth or fifth, I think it's the fifth episode of the Fail to Fail podcast, the motivational podcast. We're trying to motivate people to uh, find success and find happiness in life. And thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. And hopefully I will see you the next time I'm up in Kentucky. Yeah, I would love that. We just all got together for Robin's retirement mm-hmm. weekend, retirement party. So it's good to catch up with everybody. And, uh, it's amazing how fast time flies. Uh, we're all almost 40 or in our 40s now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I will talk to you soon, and you have a great week. All right, you too.